Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in March of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and we are lucky enough to have our returning guest, Dr. Anwar Shaikh. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Shaikh. Dr. Shaikh draws from his experience of living in cities across the world, including Ankara, Washington, D.C., Lagos, New York, and many more. Mr. Shaikh received his bachelor's from Princeton and earned his Ph.D. from Columbia, both being in economics. He is the author of Capitalism, Competition, Conflict, Crises, and Measuring the Wealth of Nations. He is the author of many journals on topics such as macroeconomics, competition policy, and inequality. Together, we discuss the fallacies behind mainstream economic theory, how history and anthropology play a bigger role in economics than we think, and why regulation is not that useful of a tool for managing the economy. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Professor Shaikh. Uh, glad you could join us and, and for the audience. Uh, this is really a special occasion. I'm always complimenting authors about their books. We like to get important authors with good books that we can analyze and discuss. But here we have truly a special case, and, and I hope uh, all, all, all my friends uh, don't pick on me for this one, but this is a book for the ages. Uh, Pro- Professor Scheich has written a new book called Capitalism. Now, we're no stranger to uh, Professor Scheich. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's at the New School of Social Research. He's the head of the Department of Economics, the graduate faculty. Professor Scheich has given lectures on this book for the past few months, essentially developing a course based off this book. So I was uh, able to attend <coughs> those lectures. We were also able here to film those lectures. And those lectures on this book and on the chapters will appear on our website shortly. This is going to be a book that will resonate long after we're gone. And therefore, we asked him if he would come and talk to us preliminarily on the book, how he conceived it, what was in it, what made it different from him, and why he felt he had to do it. Anwar. Well, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me to this interview and for filming the course. Um, I started as a graduate student a long time ago uh, in economics, and we were engaged in trying to change the world. That was what that generation at least my side of that generation was involved in. So it was very strange to walk into an economics class and be presented with a model where the world didn't really exist. It was a model of of curves and equilibria and tangencies and optimalities. Uh, I came from an undergraduate engineering degree, so I was not impressed by the math, nor was I intimidated by the math. And I began to ask myself, well, what's wrong with this? And the answer for me was that the foundation itself was wrong. And that meant going back and studying uh, 
people who had developed a different foundation in earlier times, and that led me back uh, to various things, history, anthropology, and also the classics. Uh, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, and then of course eventually forward to Kaletsky and Keynes and the policies that they proposed. And so I began to think about how to put uh, a constructive foundation that was capable of going uh, from the beginning to a world that we lived in and not have to accuse the world of being imperfect in some form. I've always thought that if your theory doesn't fit the world, it's not the world's fault, it's the theory's fault. And so I began this project. I was younger and more naive. Uh, I didn't realize how long it would take. But basically, I started working on it in this form about 15 years ago, after many years of developing the thoughts and ideas. And I'm delighted that it's come out. And the reception so far has been very good. Well, let's talk about the neoclassical model, which is what you're talking about. I mean, the, the history uh, of it is clear. It's somewhere in the 1870s, it was in the wind that uh, the classical model didn't answer uh, questions of pricing in, in, in every case. And uh, uh, it, had, it had issues with uh, uh, capital to a certain extent. Yes, I think if you look in the 1870s, 1880s, by that time, conflict had become a major feature of the capitalist world. Conflict between capitalists and landlords, which uh, Ricardo talks about, between workers and their employers, which Smith talks about, and Ricardo and Marx. And so this was a real conflict in the, in the air and on the ground. And the neoclassical economists who became successful were the ones who tried to offer a vision of a harmonious, optimal system which provides the best of all possible worlds. Now, I found this literally incredible, non-credible, because the world is in fact characterized by conflict. And so the subtitle of my book, the title of the book is Capitalism, but the three things after that are competition, which is one of the driving forces of a capitalist economy, uh, conflict, and crises. Because if you look in the history of the system, you see periodic eruptions, such as we had in 2007-8, but before that in the 1930s, and before that in the 1870s, and before that in the 1840s, and so on and so on. So I wanted to have a framework in which these kinds of outcomes, structural patterns, uh, turbulence, recurrent, uh, ups and downs were a natural consequence of the theory and not something to be brought in from the outside. And that's what motivated me to work on this book. So was your book intended to lay bare the system as it is or to pres prescribe uh, policy that might influence and bear on, on? My book is intended to do both. I, the idea is to replace the framework that uh, orthodox economists begin with, which is this framework of competition, perfect competition, optimality, rational choice. Uh, it's obvious, I think, to anyone looking at the world that this is not how people operate. And you should have a framework in which how people actually operate and firms actually operate is natural. So that's what I try to do. And it's the first part of the book is just to set up the framework and show 
that it can explain exactly the same phenomena that every economist has to explain. How firms behave, how consumers behave, how relative prices are determined. This is work, a, a section of the book deals with the empirical patterns for advanced countries on relative prices. And it's astonishing how uh, uh, accurate the classicals were in understanding these patterns. But they don't derive them from the air. They derive them from a framework in which competition and structure, which is very important, input-output structure, the structure of institutions, the structure of social relations brings these outcomes about. So that's one of the things. On the, uh, on the policy side, the book ends with a discussion of the policy implications of the current crisis. Because yes, of course, I want to show uh, what one could do to change the world. That was my original intention and motivation. But the difference is that if you look in the debates about crisis and austerity, you see that on one hand, people who favor austerity are tied to this idea that markets are perfect. And if they just left to themselves, get the governments out, get the union out, then everything will be fine. But that is not how markets actually work. On the other side, uh, progressive economists and Keynesian economists say that the government should step in and it'll regulate the system. And Keynes himself says if the government does it, then the system will be essentially like the neoclassicals. I think that's wrong. I think you can regulate the system in a certain way, but it has powerful patterns and those patterns provide limits on what you can do. So let me give you an example. In the 1960s and 70s, it was standard for economists, who are often Keynesians, to say if you have unemployment, you should pump up the system. You pump it up with deficit spending and a variety of ways to stimulate spending. And I can show in the book that that has a consequence, which is that it improves the conditions of labor, it strengthens labor, it raises wages, real wages, and when it raises real wages relative to productivity, the wage share, which is the ratio of the two, uh, rises, then the profit share declines, and that has an impact on a negative impact on the profit rate. Now, if you understand that, then you know that these policies of regulating the system have limits, and they come from the internal structure and dynamics of the system. And this is what Smith says. This is certainly what Ricardo says, and this is certainly what Marx says. Keynes doesn't emphasize that, and I'm trying to integrate the Keynesian argument in the book into the classical idea of the limits and feedback. And I think that has concrete implications for policy. So, for example, let's, let's go to what particularly happened in, in 2008. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a leading uh, question analysis, you can uh, critique it and say, say no or part, partly right, but essentially the system, the way it's constructed structurally, will eventually unbalance purchasing power and co concentrate it in relatively few hands so that, that you can't clear the product that you make in the system unless you start lending money to people who don't have purchasing power. And that has a limit because it has a limit on the amount of interest you could pay, the amount of speculation uh, that it, it induces with the, the borrowing power chasing fixed assets. So that you have a, a break in the neoclassical structure as it's, as it's outlined because it doesn't even deal with that. But you have this kind of a asymmetry going on in the economy and it gets out of hand. 
how would you propose and how would your insight that your book has uh, have headed off something like this in the first place, if that would be possible? Well, the first point I make in the book, and I show this empirically, is that these kinds of patterns are not new. I, I trace data all the way back to the 1840s, showing these cycles of boom and bust, long waves actually, which I, I can empirically also document. And I show that pretty much what we had in 2008, as well as in the 1970s, in the great stagflation, the 1930s, was pretty much on a regular schedule. I don't mean an exact schedule, of course, because these are modulated by historical and social events. But 2008 was not an accident. Around 2003, in my courses, and I have documentation of this aspect of it, I began to talk about the uh, coming uh, bust. And I used some data that I had going back uh, on long waves, and I predicted then that roughly around 2008, 2009, just based on a simple extrapolation of past patterns, we would get the next bust. Well, I was wrong. It came in 2007 and 2008. But this is with the simplest understanding that these patterns are recurrent. So what is it that's recurrent? It's normal for a competitive capitalist economy to have a boom which is based on bank credit and finance and speculation. These are absolutely normal events. And they build up a sense of well-being. They build up inequality, which the people who can take advantage of this benefit from. Uh, and then that becomes a process which is literally unstable because it's gone well beyond its foundations. But that's normal. That is how it works. And the reversion to the foundations means a bust. The boom and the bust are the two sides of a balancing mechanism. They are not independent of each other. The government, in principle, could block this. But when you think about in practice, who is the government? It's not some space aliens who come in who are not connected. They are people who come from the same countries who are often strongly influenced, if not regulated, by the very people they're supposed to be regulating. That's hardly a secret. The Federal Reserve, the Congress, get funding from the very people that they're supposed to be stopping. So how are they going to stop that? They are not going to stop it, in fact. Um, John Kenneth Galbraith, Jamie Galbraith's father, has the, one of the most wonderful books on the Great Depression. Um, and in that book, he, which is called The Great Crash, at the end of the book, he considers the following question. Will it happen again? Now, this was written in the 19. 40s or 50s, I'm not sure, but after the crash? And his answer is, as an economist, I hope not. As a historian, probably. Because as a historian, he knew that this happens again and again. So I'm not so sanguine to think that you can eliminate these patterns in a capitalist economy, because I don't see where the external source is going to come from that can override the interests of exactly the people that you have to regulate. Well, that, that suggests two questions. First of all, uh, these boom and busts on a much higher technological foundation, a much bigger base of plant and equipment, much more intensively using resources from a finite planet, uh, there is a built-in physical limit to, to all of this, sooner or later, not being able to get enough inputs 
to maintain the cycles and to, con to continually expand them. Point number one. Point number two, why would the people who benefit from boom and bust want to see boom and bust when you could argue that uh, in, the, in the 30s, uh, they nearly lost control of the system. If it was a very close run thing. Well, first, let me start by saying you're right that this is on a much bigger scale, technologically, but also geographically. Capitalism now is the system across the whole globe. And when it goes up, some parts benefit and goes down, a lot of parts get hurt. So it's absolutely correct. So I don't mean to imply that everything happens on the same scale on the same way. But these are deep patterns. They're patterns intrinsic in its logic. So then we have to ask, what's the logic? There is no they. There is an it, which is the market. And the market involves many people competing against each other with conflicting motives and perfectly happy to see other people go down if it helps them. And it's out of that conflict that these patterns em uh, emerge. They're literally emergent patterns, not from anybody's intention, but from the consequences of their actions motivated by the logic. And because of that, the idea that stopping it is much more difficult. You can restrain it, absolutely. You can contain it, absolutely. But it tends to then burst out somewhere else. And it also has a big influence on the people who supposedly regulate it because the, the, the firms and the potential money makers begin to say to politicians, look, you're stopping me from making money. You're stopping me from creating jobs. You're stopping, you're hurting people. And they, politicians by and large, back down. But the, uh, let's, let's, let me follow that uh, point a little further. You know, the term elites, of course, everyone throws it around. And it generally refers to people who are on the in, inside of a political system that somehow are getting a, 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 better, a better deal. Somehow. I mean, they, they, now, whether they're competing with each other or not competing with each other, one faction of elites competes with another faction of elites, but they tend to all vote and spin influence the same way, even if they're in opposing, let's say, capitalist factions. So that you, you, they may not be monolithic in terms of how the economy treats them, but they're pretty monolithic in terms of how they, they peddle influence. So that, that you could argue it, it, it's a super uh, viewing of their own best interest, even if they take casualties in the interim, that on balance, they're better off having a system like this than any other system. Now, what you've done is articulated how deeply entrenched and embedded this system is, and that it has powerful, almost, you're looking at a glacial-like uh, set of con conditions, that power this along no matter what. I agree, uh, I agree that that's a tendency of the system. I don't want to imply that it cannot be uh, constrained. Uh, at the moment, the system is headed in a way that could destroy the planet. And the irony is that in such events, other cultures have gone through this kind of stage, not the whole planet, but in their local geography and environment. Uh, it's in the interests of individual people and those in power especially to continue doing it, even though Logically speaking, if they look ahead, the end is very bleak. Um, I, I believe that you need a countervailing power against 
the powerful market interests, who, by the way, sometimes have a common interest and other times be happy to cut each other's throat. So, and uh, that's normal, that's competition, that's what it's about. So how do we put pressure uh, collectively and politically on the state? Well, one thing in the US which is so bizarre is this huge funding of politics by people who have money. Well, what consequences are we going to get from that? It's logical and sensible that the people who benefit from the system, if they're also able to, to fund and highly motivate the politicians, are gonna get the results they like. They're going to escape the consequences of their bad behavior. How many bankers have gone to jail? Well, why is that surprising? It's not. So the first step, obviously, is what some politicians have been saying, is to change the mode of election in the sense of the mode of support for politics. And some countries do it better than others, clearly. Uh, and it's a doable thing. The other, obviously, is a push to fight back against environmental depredation, which is an absolutely normal feature of this system. Other systems also do it, but the system does it better because it is such a powerful system. It has even worse consequences on that. A third thing is, of course, to fight for standards of living, not just 15-hour wage in the U.S., but what about the standard of living of all those people across the world who have been displaced from their lives, from their cultures, and left without any place to go? Can we blame them if they are in a space where they think, well, if we're going to die, we'll take you with us? I think not. And, and so we have to understand that this raises questions of how do we go beyond the limits of the system? One possibility is if you believe that you can control it and it'll all be fine for everybody, but I don't believe that. We haven't talked about mechanization and its effect on employment, by the way, but that's another aspect which is pretty grim from my point of view. More and more things are mechanized. Uh, certainly professors are easily mechanized now, so I can certainly see my future as a replaced by a robot. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but the question is then what happens to people if they don't have access to jobs, how do they live? I believe that you should fight against these things, but that doesn't mean just because I'd like to see them happen differently that I think they will happen differently. Okay, well, let me just point out, you know I'm a, uh, I, 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 a Georgist, uh, I like to say a, a neo-Georgist in that uh, a strict Georgist would uh, recognize a monopoly on nature, land rents, and, and there are other monopolies in addition to that that have formed up these days. Competitive uh, capitalism will, will make the strongest and smartest, the luckiest companies put everyone else out of business, create a monopoly, and finally you get monopolization where most of the work can be done by automation. People get displaced, they don't have purchasing power, but if you tax the monopoly, and created a citizen's dividend as a, as a, for example, excuse, then your question about where do the people go for jobs, well, they'd have a stipend and... Well, but I, I don't want to argue that because I, I want to make it clear that I don't believe that this is a problem intrinsically due to monopoly because when you speak about the term monopoly, I agree, certainly capitalism monopolizes the use of land because it brings it to the market and it forces it to be used for profit-making. Capitalism is extremely good at profit-making, which is quite different from being good for people or the environment or something, but it is a, a virtue of the system. But if you talk about monopoly, there's the risk of thinking that the problem is lack of competition. And from my point of view, much of the things you're talking about, which is scale, big size firms, and so on, are the natural and necessary consequences of competition. 
So if you break up one of those firms, you will not eliminate the problem because competition will produce it again. It produces that kind of concentration of power. But if you tax it, I don't say you have to break it up, you would just ta tax the monopoly uh, profit away into a common fund so that... Okay, but then ask yourself this. If you do that, what have you got? You've got a competitive system which is now less monopolistic. In my opinion, you will still get the same patterns. You won't get the concentration of of wealth and power in some locations. You may not get the monopolization of some resources, but I don't think it'll fundamentally alter the system. And this is one difference that I have with most of my friends, uh, which is that I downplay the idea of monopoly as the driver of this. It's a consequence. I won't say it's a driver. It's a consequence, but it's a powerful consequence uh, because if you eliminate purchasing power through, through monopoly, let's take America, outsourcing the jobs to cheaper cheaper wage areas took away a big swath of jobs from Amer from uh, Americans if that didn't happen of course they wouldn't have had to borrow the money and so forth so there in the ultimate in, in the ultimate working of and out you may be right but in the interim there are many interim steps that could have slowed this inevitability but, but, down but again let, let's go back to that because i think that's a good example why do firms go abroad. What does Apple produce in China when it could produce in New York? Well, Apple will tell you. They do tell you, as a matter of fact. Why? Because it's much cheaper in China. Well, so they lose some jobs in the U.S. That's not Apple's problem. Apple's problem is to make profit. They make more profit by going to China. The consequence is loss of jobs in the U.S. And uh, by the way, increase of jobs in China, and that's pretty clear also. But that is how markets work. They look restlessly across the globe and across time for opportunities to make profit. I think that is the prime characteristic of the system. What I'm trying to do in this book is to show that that has consequences that we see that derive from that intrinsic uh, dominant motive, which is a profit motive. That means that if you really want to get rid of those consequences, you will, you will have to tackle the profit motive itself. And when you do that, then you have the full power of everybody who benefits from profit, uh, including many workers, by the way, who join on in this uh, campaign, crusade, to protect that very system, because partly their jobs also depend on profitability. So it's a much more difficult question. Uh, you would think that people who see the environment being degraded, as it is evidently, uh, maybe to the point of no return, would all jump up and say, stop it. But of course, when you talk, talking to them about that, they start saying, well, what's going to happen to my job? If you prevent me from fishing here, what's going to happen? How do I work? If you prevent me from using this land, what happens to my children? And those are reasonable questions. They are already tied into a particular system, and it takes a lot of work to not only persuade them that the outcome is bad, but that we can offer them real alternatives. It's very important. You can't just tell people, don't consume and you'll be fine, you need to give them another way of consuming. It may be less, you may want to persuade them not to consume as much, but you have to give them jobs, you have to give them a future. For their children, you have to say there's a future. We're going to stop with that, Anwar, because uh, I think we can anticipate reading the book now and, and seeing just what we're in for, what can be done. All right, thanks, Anwar. Thank you very much, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. 
If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.